Thank you. Oh, Hannah stole my thunder there a bit (laughs) with the last line. But we're going to read this morning from Nehemiah chapter 1. So if there's um, Bibles at the end of the pew, if you want to find that, it's on uh, page 485. So Nehemiah chapter 1, and it's the whole verse this morning, uh, whole chapter this morning. So Nehemiah's prayer, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that the servant, um, that they survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been um, burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, included myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if I exiled, your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and by your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sweet. Let's just pray for Kai before he speaks to us, shall we? Father God, we thank you for Kai. We thank you for the word that you have placed on his heart for us for this morning. Father God, would you come by your Holy Spirit now? Would you minister powerfully among us? Would you give Kai the boldness and the courage to say the things that you need him to say? And Lord, would you give us the humility and the open hearts to hear the words this morning, to hear those words that you have? Lord, would you help us to let them encourage us and to challenge us so that we might walk closer with you? Amen. Amen. Well, good morning there, lovely people, and it is lush, as always, to be here today. And it's stunning, actually, to start a new section of this, our year of discipleship. And we are going through a book now, the book of Nehemiah. And I've got to say, Hannah said it, and Ruthie said it, 
that finish of saying, I was a cupbearer to the king. I love it because he's got nothing else to do with the rest of the chapter. It's almost like he's run out of things to say. And, oh, by the way, I was a cupbearer to the king. Um, but that's a nice little thing that we know about Nehemiah. And, of course, it's got some relevance as well. And it's been fab listening to all those things that we might dream of doing or dreamt of doing and even living out what we're doing as well. But I've got to say, thinking of those things and careers, I was really affected by Phil this morning. And I was affected by Phil because I forget sometimes these things. I forget the pressure that goes on teachers, educators, lecturers, and all the rest of it, as well as pupils. And funny thing happened this week. I was in Pembrokeshire doing a communion service, and somebody said to me, can you pray over the A-level results? And of course, to my great regret, I forgot that it was A-level results day. And it was so wonderful that Phil reminded us to pray for all the young people who've been affected by the A-level results. And when I heard that, my own mind was taken back to all those years ago when my friends and I received our results and what happened on that day. Because that was the day for us that everything seemed to change. Now, me and my friends, we were, and we kind of still are, a close-knit group of lads. We spent all day together in school. We spent every evening together walking the streets. We got into all kinds of shenanigans. We tried sneaking into pubs. We lived in each other's houses. We knew each other's parents. We were a unit. We were a family. And we were also very different. But, of course, at that time, it didn't matter so much. But on the day that the A-level results came through, it came more clear how different we were. Because before that day, we hadn't really talked about what we were going to do post-school. But then it all came to pass that we had to talk about it. And just for those few weeks to come, those last weeks that we were together, as those great group of friends, those in-betweeners, because then, as the weeks would go by, we would depart from each other to our separate ways. Some would go off to university, some would stay at home. Some would go far away, some would stay close. Some would go off to study sciences, some more arts, and some would learn to learn a craft. A few of my friends were gifted as science and still are and went off and went for the full career as PhD students. I chose the life of the vicar, as you can see. And one of my other friends, he decided that he really wanted to learn a trade. And he wanted to be a bricklayer. So, September, October comes round. We all say goodbye to each other. And we go our separate ways. Then Christmas comes round. And we are all back together once again. And for all those who know that first year that first term even of university, when you return, you'll know the score. One had got himself heavily into debt and was trying to get money off his dad. One had fallen deeply in love. One had suddenly changed his accent into something completely different altogether. One, well, he was just struggling. Me, I was just jittering through. And it was weird because in some ways we'd all changed as people. But when we came together for that time again, it was like nothing had changed. 
So we caught up and we were all talking about what was going on and we all laughed at the guy who got himself into debt. But the one friend of ours who was training to be a bricklayer, he was the only one who changed because he had dropped out of the course that he was doing. And we all rinsed him about it. And we rinsed him for years for the fact that he didn't do this. And he went on and worked in an office and he still works in an office and has built a really good career there. We rinsed him that this dream that he had, even from being younger, he just couldn't do. Skip forward a few years, and by this point, we'd all graduated, and we're still together as a group of friends, and we're in that in-between point before we've met life partners and wives and all the rest of it, and we're all hanging out in our parents' houses trying to work out the rest of life. We, one of our parents, needed a wall built, and they had some builders in. And the builders, who my one friend knew, said we could all have a go at doing some bricklaying. So, sure enough, each and every one of us got some cement, a brick, and had a go at bricklaying. And it turned out that we couldn't do it. It turned out that it was a lot harder than we thought it would be. And it turned out that we had no right to rinse this guy who was learning to lay bricks because It was such a skill. It was an incredible skill that we couldn't get our heads around. We all assumed it was easy because we watched TV shows where brickies are doing things and they're just doing that, sticking it down and moving on. We'd walk past building sites where brickies were doing all that, moving on, putting up our buildings really quickly. And we thought, how hard can it be? But it turned out it would be really hard. And in some ways, that is a brilliant metaphor for the book of Nehemiah. For those who know the book of Nehemiah already, you will know that it's about building a wall, rebuilding a wall. And in that sense, it can sound very simple. There's a wall, it needs to be rebuilt, end of. But there's a lot more going on than that. And it's actually a lot more harder than that. And there's a lot of challenge in that. And there's a lot of challenge for us today and a challenge for the church in general today and a challenge for us as a church here today as well. Now, for those who are interested in where all these fits in the great narrative of Scripture, the book of Nehemiah in our Bible sits somewhere in the middle. However, it was the last book in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, It was the last thing that the Jews would have read before later on we got to the New Testament. It used to be part of the book of Ezra, which precedes it. And up until about the 16th century, those two books were seen as one. So if you are reading at home, it might be worth having a peep at Ezra to begin with. And overall, it tells the story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem for the return of the Israelites to the land. Now, a hundred years previous to this, the Israelites had been taken captive by the Babylonians. They had been in exile, living away from the land that they were promised by God. They had disturbed God. They hadn't followed God. And as God had promised, if they stopped following his ways, they would be taken away for a season. And they were for this hundred years or so. And now the time was coming right for them to return. And that's where Nehemiah fits in. 
And why it's important that he is a cupbearer is because he had the year of the king who was keeping the Israelites as exiles. By this point, the king of Persia. He had the year the return was imminent. But that is where the first real challenge comes in. He got a report of what Jerusalem was like. And he was heartbroken about it. You see, Jerusalem wasn't just a city. Jerusalem wasn't just a set of buildings. Jerusalem was Zion, God's promised city, in the middle of the temple, the dwelling place of God. This was the most special city on earth. And here it was, lying in ruins. And Nehemiah was heartbroken by the fact that that was there. His desire to see it rebuilt was there. And the desire for the people to return to a place that was good. Heartbreak is such a key theme in the scriptures, which sometimes we don't always acknowledge. And it manifests itself in so many ways. We ourselves can be heartbroken. We ourselves can break hearts. And we can see it as quite a negative thing at times. But it's not always that way. For Nehemiah, if his heart wasn't broken for Jerusalem, there was no way he would want to leave Persia and go back to rebuild the walls. His heart broke for that place. And through that heartbreak, God was willing to move. When I was first ordained, we were living in Bridgend. And we were ministering in a group of churches there. And I've got to say, and I'll be honest, we hated it. And we lived there for two and a bit years, and we just couldn't get on with it. In one sense, everything was fine. Called to ministry, doing the ministry, and all was good. And after about a year, something really occurred to me what the problem was. I quite liked the job, speaking about jobs. I quite liked vicaring. I quite liked doing communion, preaching the word, pastoring the people, going to see people in their homes, doing communion. I liked all that. But the problem was, I didn't like where we lived. In fact, I had a real problem with where we lived. And I think the reason why I didn't like where we lived was, it wasn't what I knew. I'd spent all my life to that point, other than being in college, in this one town in South Wales. It was different to this place where I was living, and I was missing home. When I was called to ministry, I wanted to see God move so much in my hometown, and my heart broke for that town. My heart broke that people didn't know the gospel. My heart broke that there were people in poverty. My heart broke that there were people who were sick and ill. My heart broke for the whole thing. My heart broke for the buildings, the infrastructure. But where we were, my heart didn't break. With my heart not breaking, I found it hard to care. And when I found it hard to care, I found it hard to minister there. And I remember one day being out walking our beautiful dog, praying that the Lord would break my heart for that place. Desperately, earnestly praying that the Lord would break my heart so I could love it so much that I would genuinely want to see every single person come to faith. 
genuinely want to see every person be healed and genuinely want to see injustice fought. We need, in so many ways, to be praying for our hearts to be broken for where we are now. We need our hearts broken for Aberystwyth or if we're visiting the communities where we've come from. We need our hearts to be broken for the students who will be arriving in September. We need our hearts to be broken for those who are lost. We need our hearts to be broken for those who are vulnerable. We need our hearts to be broken for this land that the Lord has called us to. And we need to acknowledge that that is a good thing. Nehemiah's heart was broken over Jerusalem, but he wasn't the only one. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus wept over the city because his heart broke so much for it, as his heart wept over the world and what was happening. We need to weep over this town, and we need to weep over the world that we care so much that we feel compelled to spread the gospel. We feel compelled to live out the gospel message. We feel compelled to see people come to faith. And we're not content in where we are as well. It's a very easy thing to fall into, contentment. But we need to have our heart breaking and say, Lord, we want more of you. We want to see more of you. And we want to see you at the centre of all we do see you at the centre of all we're building. And in the midst of all of that, acknowledge our own heartbreak as well. And maybe that's especially true for us as a church year. Maybe it's especially true for the churches where we live. Maybe it's true for the church in general. You see, when the Israelites did return when the Israelites got back to Jerusalem and when the whole city was rebuilt and even the temple was rebuilt and being dedicated, there were tears. There was weeping and there was upset. And there was upset from an old generation who had heard of or even remembered what the city was like, what the temple was like and how it wasn't the same. But of course, they were missing the point that God was doing a new thing. As a church here, as a church throughout the world, as churches, and especially in Wales and the West, we can dwell so much on the past. We can dwell so much on what the Lord has done in the past. We can remember days of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people going to church. We can remember the days when everyone was doing everything and the glory days when people were happy. We can acknowledge all of that. And yes, our hearts can break because it can feel like it's not that. But we often have to acknowledge that sometimes we do look things through starry eyes and things weren't always as brilliant as we remember. I remember once being in a meeting with an archdeacon when we were in South Wales and everyone was lamenting how everyone went to church 50 or 60 years ago and there was nothing else to do on a Sunday and all our churches were full. And this particular archdeacon was a real expert on the valleys where we were ministering and he just said, you know, that's a lot of rubbish. Give or take, we're about the same as we were as back in those days. People didn't go to church in those days as well and have the same excuses. But we look back through the starry eyes and see it in such a way. 
It's so easy to remember with so much fondness that we can forget the other stuff that was going on. And more importantly, forget what God is doing now. Because when the rebuilding project was taking place, when Nehemiah was tasked with rebuilding the walls, God was doing a brand new thing. God was doing something else. And though it's right to acknowledge the past, though it's right to see the past, though it's right to celebrate the past, though it's good to look to the past, we can only do it with one eye. The rest should be on the future and looking forward to what God is doing now. We can be heartbroken, but our hearts need a break for what God wants to do next and what God will do next when he seeks to build his kingdom. The second thing we can really think about when we think about this reading is Nehemiah's prayer. And I guess linked into this whole heartbreak thing, Nehemiah prayed a prayer, and as part of that prayer, he repented for the sins of Israel that were past, chucking in his own there. And that's remarkable for one good reason. And that was Nehemiah had nothing to do with the past sins of Israel. He wasn't the one worshipping the false gods that led to the Israelites being spread out. He wasn't the one who did the dirty. He wasn't the, the naughty boy. But here he was repenting on behalf of those who had gone past. We talk a lot about confession Every service we do, we confess our sins. But one thing we perhaps talk about less is corporate repentance and repentance that we do for things that have been in the past. And whether those things are down to us or somebody else, there are so many things that we, as a nation, as a church, as a world, as a people, as an individual, need to repent of. Some people think it's mad that our world leaders will give apologies for the slavery trade from years ago because they had nothing to do with it. But that's part of corporate repentance for a nation, saying sorry before you can move on. And the same goes for us as a church. We need to be willing to repent of the things that have gone before so that we can truly move forward. And as I say that out loud... I know for a lot of people, there might be a lot of questions involved in that. After all, we've said sorry to God just this morning. I'd say we do it every week. We confess our sins and we move on. And we do so in the knowledge that we are forgiven. And I say that knowing today to say to you, you are forgiven. If you have repented and you mean it, you are forgiven. But with confession, there is something else going on. When we were in college, I had a guy in the room next door to me for a bit who was a Catholic, and he was a really lovely guy in this guy from Northern Ireland. And we used to take the mick out of each other, me being this happy, clappy, charismatic, and him being this Catholic. But we had some really good conversations as well. And one day we had this conversation on confession, and I said, mate, what's the deal in with you going to confession? What's all that about? Don't you believe you're saved by grace? And he said, of course I believe that. 
So, so why do you feel the need to go to somebody else, even a priest, and confess your sins, say your Hail Marys or whatever else you've got to say, and then crack on with the rest of your day? And he basically said to me, stop watching telly. There's a lot more that goes on to confession than all of that. You know, he said, confession isn't so much a, this is what I've done, let me out of it. Confession is a conversation. It's a conversation about why we have done things and what it is that we can do so that we don't do them again. When you frame it in that way, it makes sense. And when we get to the New Testament, when James says, confess your sins to each other, you can see what he was going on about. If we are to grow and go forward, we have to acknowledge maybe the things that we've done wrong, why we do those things wrong, and what we can do going forward. And as I say, that works on a world level, it works on a national level, and it works on a church level, and a local church level as well. I don't know what this church might have done wrong in the years, but I can guarantee it's done some stuff wrong. And I can guarantee that because there is no church that has ever existed that hasn't done something wrong. If you read through the scriptures, you read through the writings of Paul, and he writes to the churches, and we get to Revelation and the seven churches there, you will see them saying, well done on this, but by the way, sort that out. Every church that we see is in sin in some kind of way that they have to acknowledge and move on from. And if we think we haven't got any of that sin, then we're arrogant, which means we have got sin and we need to repent. <laughs> in other words, we make mistakes and that is part of living. We are not perfect. And in the past, our churches have made mistakes. And we need to do a bit of a Nehemiah if we really want to move on, and that is repent, confess, and go forward. As a church, we are formulating a vision for where we are going forward. We are seeking to rebuild our walls, as it were, like Nehemiah. And in the months to come, we're going to talk about that a bit more and really focus in on what that is. But prayer is central to that. Our next month, I really want us to have a day of prayer as a church. And as part of that day of prayer, have a time of confession and repentance. A corporate time for us as a church. Acknowledging the things that might have gone in the past which were not of the Lord, but moving forward as well. And that's not to beat ourselves up with. That's not to put ourselves down with. And that's not to dishonor anything that's been in the past as well. That's an acknowledgement that we are human. And as humans, we will always make mistakes. And as we make mistakes, we need a saviour. And praise the Lord, we got a saviour whose name is Jesus. And when he gives us the forgiveness, we can move forward. And that's where we're at, moving forward. Moving forward into what is next. Moving forward into what the Lord wants us to do next moving forward into what is to come. And that's where the third great thing about this reading, and maybe Nehemiah as a whole comes in, and that is the word hope. Because fundamentally, this whole chapter, though it's got heartbreak, though it's got repentance, and though it's got so much pain, 
is one of complete hope. Nehemiah looks at Jerusalem and is destroyed. Nehemiah knows why Jerusalem is destroyed and acknowledges the sin of Israel and all of that. But he wants to see the walls rebuilt through hope. He does so in the hope that God will be there again. And you know this word hope is so essential because we get it wrong so often. I've said this before and it's worth repeating again. We get the word hope wrong because we can hope. And when we say out loud, it sounds like something that may or may not happen. I hope that next year Wales will win the Rugby World Cup. I hope that this year Wales will win the Football World Cup. I hope the Merthyr Tidville AFC will be promoted, promoted and promoted till they can receive Premier League status. I hope in all of those sorts of things. Merthyr lost to Aberystwyth a few weeks ago, by the way, so don't have too much hope for that. But I hope in all of these things. But those hopes are just dreams. These aren't things that aren't going to happen. They might happen if a billionaire comes in and takes over Merthyr, but I doubt it. But that's how we think of hope. I hope I will do this. I hope I will do that. But when it comes to the scriptures, hope isn't like that. Hope is a certainty. Hope is a certainty of what God is doing. The Greek word that is used is one of complete and utter certainty that God is going to do a good thing. And that's the hope that Nehemiah had. When Nehemiah set out to rebuild the walls, he wasn't going... I tell you what, I'm going to build up these walls and I hope some people turn up or else. He was doing it in the knowledge that God was in it. And he was doing it in the knowledge that the exiles would return and God's plan for Israel would come to pass. And when we read through the whole narrative of Scripture, the whole drama of Scripture, we can see it in action. We can see how God called this nation Israel. He called them to be pure and holy. They screwed up, they were in exile but the promise was still there. He called them back to the land, and from that land, from that people, a Messiah would come, whose name was Jesus, who would bring healing and repentance to the whole world, who would die, be raised, ascend to heaven, and our ultimate hope will come back again. Not a hope that's a wing, but a hope that's a certainty as certain as we are that Jesus will one day return, was the hope that Nehemiah had for Israel when he set out to build the, build the walls. And that's the hope that we need to have, that God is still at work today. That God is still at work in this world. That God is still at work in the UK. That God is still at work in Wales. That God is still at work in Aberystwyth, that God is still at work in the communities where we come from, that God hasn't given up. Because you know what? It's so easy to fall into the narrative that we're all in decline and everything's going to be destroyed. But God is still at work. And God can do a new thing. And God will do a new thing. And you know what? God will do a new thing here if we will allow him. If we will come before him if we will humble ourselves, if we will bow the knee, if we will do the things that Nehemiah did, God will do a new thing here. And yes, it may feel different to what has been before. And yes, that can be scary. 
But yes, it's worth it because God is at work. God will be at work. God will do a new thing, not just here, but in all our churches and all the denominations and in this nation and in this world. I don't believe in kingdom decline. I believe in kingdom growth. I believe that God truly wants to build his kingdom here. And I believe that we need to follow the example of Nehemiah in doing that. Let's not be scared to acknowledge our heartbreak. Let's not be scared to ask the Lord to break our hearts for where we are. Let's not be scared to repent and move forward, learning from the past. And let's not be scared, above all, to put our hope in the Lord, to put our trust in the Lord, and to allow him with us, through us, and in him us, to do the things that he wants to do. I'm just going to pray now. And as we pray, we're going to pray for all the things that are going on in the world. We're going to pray for all the things that are going on in our community and in our church as well. And we're going to pray that the Lord's kingdom would truly be built as the walls of Jerusalem were to be built as well. So let's pray. Loving Father, we give thanks to you for the wonderful gift of Scripture and for the story of Nehemiah. And we give thanks that you gave him a vision. And we pray that you would give us a vision as well. And in that vision, we pray that you would break our hearts. And right now, we pray for our world. And if it helps us in our mind's eye, get an image of our world. Lord, reveal to us where there is pain now. Reveal to us where there is heartbreak now. Reveal to us where there is sorrow now. And whether that is in a nation of the world, nations of the world, places where we've been on holiday, places that we love, places where family live, Lord, we lift this world to you and the world in its entirety. And we pray your blessing, your healing upon it all. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for all the heartbreak that is here. And Lord, as a nation, we repent for the heartbreak that we have caused to people. We repent that there are people living in poverty. We repent that there are people who are struggling. We repent for all the negativity that there is. And Lord, we pray that you would intervene. We pray over those who are called to lead us, that you would bless them with the vision of Nehemiah. We pray for those who are in leadership in other ways. We pray over the current race to be the next Prime Minister. And we pray over both candidates and the eventual winner that you would bless them. And in this time of pain and sorrow that so many people are feeling, you would give a vision to rebuild 
not for the sake of people's glory, but for the sake of your kingdom and kingdom values. We pray, Lord, for our community. And we pray for the communities that we live in. And Lord, we pray that you would break our hearts for these communities, that the fullness of the gospel would be lived out. We pray over those who have received A-level results this year, for those who are preparing to move to new communities, for those who are carrying anxiety and sorrow. We pray for our university. We pray for our schools. We pray for our teachers. We pray for pupils. We pray for parents preparing to send their children back to school and all the stress that goes on there. We pray for all who are visiting on holiday. We pray for our shops, our businesses. And we pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us all. And Lord, we pray for our church. We pray for the universal church throughout the world. We pray for those who lead us. We pray for our own diocese, our own bishop. And we pray, Lord, for our LMA. And we pray for our church, you. We pray, Lord, that you would build your kingdom here. We pray that we would follow your ways. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us. And we pray for vision of going forward. And we pray that you would grow us, both spiritually and with new people coming to faith. We pray for all of us here in the needs that we carry. And be that healing in body, mind, or spirit, be it something else. We pray that you would intervene and draw close to us. We pray over events that are coming up in this week and things that we are carrying that might cause us stress, pain, or anxiety, that you would come and bless us. And above all, Lord, we pray that we would walk in your ways, in the ways that lead to everlasting life. Bless us this day, we pray. Bless us in your name. Bless us in the power of your spirit. And may your spirit continue to rest on us and fill us with excitement for the things that you want us to do. Fill us with joy and may true hope be upon us as we seek to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.